Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. And hello to our listeners. So welcome to a special Descent Magazine audio blog about the latest round of climate negotiations in Paris. My name is Daniel Aldana-Cohen. I'm a writer and PhD candidate at NYU in sociology, and I research the politics of climate change. And my name is Kate Aronoff. I'm a journalist who writes about climate change and social movements for Descent, Jacobin, Waging Nonviolence in These Times, and a few other outlets. And who knows, maybe we'll even make more audio blogs about the politics of climate change. Intriguing. So this is like an experiment. Exactly. We're calling it Dissenting Climate. And you should tweet your thoughts about this to hashtag Dissenting Climate. And at us, my Twitter handle is at Kate Aronoff. And my Twitter handle is at all the tweets. But if you remember just one thing, make it hashtag Dissenting Climate. And all of this will be up again on the Descent Magazine blog. So today we're just going to do a quick recap of the recaps of COP21, the climate negotiations that wrapped up in Paris in mid-December. COP, by the way, stands for Conference of the Parties, and this was the 21st one. Now, Kate, you were there. So after a short rundown of the negotiations, we'll get a detailed report from you on the social movement scene outside the talks, and we'll listen to some of the most interesting excerpts from your interviews. And then, Daniel, we'll hear your interview with Professor Timmons Roberts from Brown University, who also traveled to Paris and has written about what happened there. Timmons is a longtime expert on climate negotiations. He's written several influential books about them, the latest of which is called Power in a Warming World. And he runs the Climate Development Lab at Brown. So before we get into our longer segments, I just want to start by asking you, Kate, what was it like in Paris while you were there? It wasn't exactly a sea of tranquility, was it? By no means. Uh, as our listeners may know, French President Francois Hollande declared a nationwide state of emergency in France right after the horrific attacks in Paris on November 13th. That essentially gave French police the freedom to act without judicial oversight, meaning they can detain people at will, raid homes without warrants, and shut down public spaces without a reason. Around COP specifically, the government announced that demonstrations and, quote, open spaces would be banned, including the 500,000-person global climate march that had been planned for November 29th. That ban conspicuously didn't extend to Christmas markets or soccer matches, which went on without a hitch through the length of the talks. So how did this draconian crackdown affect the social movement scene, which, after all, was in large part made up of activists from all around the world? Organizers basically had to start from scratch. Before the talks began, 24 climate activists were placed under house arrest, and through the two weeks of the talks, most of the squats that were housing activists who were in town for COP were raided by police. On top of the global climate march, there had been another plan for a huge civil disobedience the day after the talks were scheduled to end in La Bourget, the Paris suburb where they were taking place. But given that the area around La Bourget is a huge Muslim immigrant population and has been one of the most heavily targeted by police this, these last two months, organizers reconsidered after conversations with community groups there. Still, the ban on protests didn't exactly work. There were roving actions inside and outside of the talks, the largest of which was the 15,000-person Red Lines demonstration that happened the Saturday at, at the end of the talks. Uh, and as one organizer said to me, in moments where everything is forbidden, everyone is disobedient. And there was plenty of disobedience at COP21. 
I can't wait to hear more about these movements uh, in a few minutes. But first, let's just do that quick recap of the recaps of COP, just so listeners have a sense of what they can look into if they want a kind of more detailed synthesis of what went down in the negotiations. I guess the place to start would be uh, to take apart the acronym uh, INDC. INDC. Okay, so what does that mean again? It stands for Intended Nationally Determined Contributions. Basically, it's the word for what made the Paris negotiations so distinct and historic. Since the early 1990s, the way that climate negotiations have worked is that countries got together and the rich countries would haggle over how much to cut emissions, while developing countries didn't have to make a firm commitment. Right, right. I mean, after all, I guess most of the heat-trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere were emitted historically by rich countries. So with the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, it was just rich countries that would take on concrete commitments to cut their greenhouse gas emissions. Exactly, but since the Kyoto process fell apart, the new idea has been that every country, rich and poor, should voluntarily step up and tell the world what it plans to do. Then the countries will be held accountable by public opinion, political pressure, etc. We'll get to the critiques of what that looks like in a minute. Okay, but so the, the key point in the run-up to Paris, you know, if I'm getting this right, is that each country had to prepare and release an INDC, which basically laid out targets for emissions cuts for that country. And then the country had to lay out a plan to get there. So it's, this is basically, right, a new approach to getting everyone on board. And until Paris, uh, no one was sure if it would actually be effective. Exactly. And that brings us to the most important tension in the Paris talks. On the one hand, the countries all agreed that global average surface temperatures should increase by no more than 2 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. They also said that we should, quote, aspire to only 1.5 degrees of warming. In the last major talks in Copenhagen in 2009, Global South nations famously walked out of the talks around this number, chanting that they needed, quote, 1.5 to survive, and that anything more than that would be a death sentence. Now, keep in mind that we have already warmed by one degree, and that many in the Global South and even parts of this country are already feeling those effects. Right, exactly. And so the problem, right, is that when you add up all the INDCs the countries brought to Paris, you're looking at projections of something like three degrees of warming by the end of the century, which most people consider a disaster. That's right. And the promises do not add up, or they do, just two, between 2.7 and 3.7 degrees Celsius of warming. Right. So I guess one takeaway from Paris, then, is that there is, on the one hand, a renewed commitment to the two degrees Celsius target, even the 1.5 degree target. But at the same time, if you actually look at the component parts of the agreement, which are made up of these INDCs, they end up getting a bunch more. So this is a problem. Yes. But the countries also agreed to meet up every five years in so-called ratcheting up sessions, where they evaluate progress and set more ambitious goals if necessary. And yes, ratcheting up is the actual name of the process. So basically, there's an ambitious promise in terms of the principle of safe warming, then concrete promises on emissions reductions that violate that first ambitious promise. But then there's a third promise, which is to meet and improve those concrete promises five years from now. Sounds like a plan, or at least the outlines of one. Okay, so what are the analysts saying? The movement's analysts are not all that pleased. Cindy Weisner of the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance has said that it's a, quote, death warrant for the planet, 
Bill McKibben of 350.org, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times denouncing the Paris Accords as totally inadequate to the challenge at hand. He's not happy about all the celebrating. Neither is Naomi Klein, who told the Huffington Post that, quote, it's a strange thing to cheer for setting a target that you are knowingly failing to meet. The most consistent line I've heard from left of center people talking about Paris is that we can't afford to be complacent, that now more than ever, social movements need to step up and start fighting to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Okay. And so is there anybody who's a bit more hopeful about what went down? Right. There's plenty of division here. Online organizing outfit Avaz called it a turning point in human history. Sierra Club executive director Michael Brune similarly said that the accords were a turning point for humanity, adding that President Obama's leadership will go down in the annals of history. Generally, the larger the NGO is, the more likely it is that they are celebrating the Paris Accords right now. That said, most are at least playing at least partial lip service to the idea that movements will shape whether the accords will be worth a damn moving forward. Hmm, interesting. So I guess, you know, basically everybody agrees that the deal isn't perfect. Right. But the tone is, I think, a little different, you know, depending on the end of the political spectrum. So I've also been looking at some of these recaps, and I found, for instance, Michael Levy, who's an increasingly well-known climate policy analyst at the Council for Foreign Relations. He wrote a widely cited piece called Two Cheers for the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. His argument basically is that the agreement went as far as you could possibly expect for a climate negotiation. And he argues if public opinion swings behind the deal, then governments really will be forced to ratchet up their actions. Brad Plumer at Vox has a slightly more jaded take. His piece is called The World Just Agreed to a Major Climate Deal in Paris. Now comes the hard part. Basically, Plumer's saying that the agreement adds energy to already existing efforts. Those efforts are inadequate, but at least the diplomacy itself is no longer a drag on cutting emissions. The action has now moved decisively to the realm of national governments, and they no longer have any excuse for slacking. So it sounds like, you know, even on different parts of the political spectrum, you're still getting this tension between more and less optimistic takes. So um, there are a bunch of these kind of more technical approaches, and we're going to be posting those on the blog, and you, dear listeners, can investigate the details for yourselves. But what I'd like to do now is somehow hear from some of the climate activists who actually traveled to Paris, but whose voices have mostly been missing from the mainstream coverage of the talks. I think I've got just the thing. I landed in Paris on December 1st. Having never been to a conference of parties before, I tried to get as deep into the bubble of COP21 as I could. The official proceedings of UN climate talks fall somewhere between a G20 meeting and a high-tech science fair, if that science fair happened at an IKEA. There are lots of talks and presentations. A few people walk away with a prize, but most leave empty-handed. The talks themselves took place in La Bourget, a suburb of Paris. The blue zone where negotiators met is a shiny converted aircraft hangar reserved for national delegates and civil society observers. For those without an official press pass, like me, updates from inside the blue zone came through daily press briefings, the UN's live stream, and anyone you happen to know on the inside. I spent my time outside the talks, speaking mostly to civil society staffers, direct action organizers, and union leaders. What I found were really two different climate negotiations, not one. The first, the official talks, took place in La Bourget. That's where world leaders and countries' negotiating teams worked late into the night, hammering out the details of what would eventually become known as the Paris Accords. 
The second was more diffuse, less shiny, and arguably more hopeful. Its settings were converted warehouses and art spaces throughout Paris and its suburbs. Organizers from around the world that gathered there were also burning their fair share of midnight oil, but on a different task. Sending a message to negotiators and the rest of the world that what was happening in Paris wouldn't end there. Of course, there was plenty of action inside Le Bourget as well, including a 600-person occupation of the main negotiating hall on December 9th. But the distinction is more about theories of change than it is about geography. In the first talks, climate action is a matter of diplomacy and what today's governments can do moving forward. In the second, it's about how far movements can push the terms of the climate debate forward. Recapping the agreement that eventually came out on Saturday, Harjit Singh of the NGO ActionAid said, the Paris Agreement provides an important hook on which people can hang their demands. I asked organizers on the ground in Paris what those demands are and how they plan to make sure they're met. Here's Tom Goldtooth, a longtime organizer for indigenous and environmental rights. He's now the executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. In Paris, Goldtooth joined over 100 other North American activists as part of the It Takes Roots delegation, most members of which live in some of the areas being worst hit by climate impacts and fossil fuel extraction. He was also inside the Blue Zone. We've been using It Takes Roots, It Takes Roots, really. Yeah. Uh, this is part of the movement of, that we're advocating for. We're part of a, a, a massive movement of uh, indigenous peoples, uh, people of color, workers, uh, low-income people, uh, people from the from the streets, people from the dirt roads of the rural areas of America, coming together because we know what it is to live in the belly of the beast, the beast of capitalism, the beast of unlimited growth. That's why we're here because it takes roots to stand up. And that's why we're asking world leaders to dig down deep in their reevaluation of their relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth. That's what it's going to take. And how is, how is bringing so many of the, of the people represented in the It Takes Roots delegation together? What is having that united force been like? It's very important to have that indigenous voice because we are the people on the front lines. We are the most vulnerable. You know, we represent 80% of the cultural diversity of the world, living within 80% of the, uh, of the biodiversity of the world. So whenever our, uh, our our landscapes, our ecosystems are endangered, which they are, we are endangered. So this is a life and death issue for us. And, uh, you know, we should not have to be in the situation when we're fighting for recognition of language in, the, in this Paris Agreement uh, that recognizes our full rights as indigenous peoples. But here we are, we're fighting for that again. You know, why is it that uh, world leaders and... Uh, People who back them up, the multinational corporations, the extractive industry, the world banks, the financial institutions. Why are they afraid of indigenous people? Why don't they want to recognize their rights? Because they're afraid that, uh, that uh, they have to walk the truth. That's what it is. There's too much corruption, corporate takeover in that UN system. So we're part of a mass movement of grassroots mobilization. We got the solutions. The people of the world, all people, were walking uh, hand in hand with all people of the world. The day before, language protecting indigenous rights had been stripped from Article 2 of the draft text, where negotiators outlined the terms of the deal's implementation. The only reference to indigenous rights that made its way into the final accords was in the preamble, which is more of a suggestion for countries than a mandate. While parts of the articles are legally binding, 
The preambles are more or less where negotiators put all the things they think they should say, but don't actually want to commit themselves to. Here's what Goldtooth had to say about it. Well, we, we've been there before. You know, I expected it with our indigenous environmental network. We've been in those, uh, you know, in those hallways of that uh, corruption, you know, that's going on on the inside. We, we predicted that they might pull this. And, you know, so we end up uh, spending all our energy lobbying around a couple words, you know, when the real work that is being done is here on the outside, where we're mobilizing people by, you know, not not just a couple of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people eventually as we go into 2016 to go beyond, beyond COP21 to keep this momentum going. And people are starting to wake up here in Europe and France and um, they're starting to see that indigenous, indigenous peoples were, you know, we're still around, we're still here, we're the consciousness of Mother Earth. And uh, we know that, you know, capitalism, the corporations, they don't want to recognize indigenous people. They'd rather that we die off. You know, that's, what the, that's what's going on here. One of the solutions that they have that's in the text is around carbon markets, you know, using a market system that allows the polluters really off the hook. They don't have to cut back their uh, emissions. They're not cutting back at source. They'll continue to pollute in places like Richmond, California, Martinez, California, in the tar sands. And what gives them a green a greenwash opportunity is that they're saying, we're buying carbon credits in the South where carbon credits are cheaper. You know, maybe they are investing in conservation of forests, but at what expense? They end up owning that forest at the end of the day. And our, our indigenous peoples don't have access to go get the wood, things that they need for livelihood. And there's like in Ecuador, there's social bosque. There's uh, reserves over there right now where people are uh, can't go into the woods. There's police force, you know, and that's happening all over. In, in Kenya, Africa, the Singwa were forcibly removed. And that was a uh, World Bank funded uh, red project. So that's why we're calling out these corporations, you know. And um, they they improved, they approved red uh, this past year, and they're moving forward. So we're mobilizing this grassroots movement because we're going to stop it at the grassroots level, country by country. That's what that's what it's going to take. So, but people need to know because you know these negotiations have not been open to civil society. Okay, a lot of the NGOs too they sell out. You know. Yeah, it's a revolving door between uh, some of the NGOs, green groups, and corporations and government. You know, I've seen that through, uh, you know, over 14 years of going into the, the UN. You know, it's bullshit. It's lies. It's corruption. Yeah, it's co-optation. Yeah. And and what what do you hope? What would be a best case scenario for COP21, both in, within the official proceedings and? in uh, what movements are you able to, to do outside of it? Well, you know, the outcome is uh, just for people to start connecting and building their power, you know, a power for just transition. Give the power back to community because that power has been taken from our people. As if they feel, well, you know, we might as well negotiate. It's better than nothing kind of a scenario. No, some of these things are not negotiable. Like what my son said in the press conference, you know, um, weakened language around the recognition of indigenous peoples is, is not negotiable. 
you know, we're demanding uh, the full breadth of what we worked for for our close to 19 years on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And behind us, you know, I call them out. I'm from the United States. The U.S. is mo mo moving, you know, a lot of this agenda. You know, whenever we get uh, support from developing countries or small in states on climate issues, you know, they come in with their U.S. aid monies and they say, hey, back away, you know. Yeah, we see that. I also talked to Selge Bellamere, one of the main organizers behind something called the Climate Games, a series of creative actions carried out by small teams of activists throughout the two weeks of COP21. I asked Selge about the games and what trying to organize direct action in Paris looked like in a state of emergency and what he hoped would come out of it. Ultimately, right from the start, the goal for Paris, for the movements, wasn't to influence the COP, it wasn't to uh, you know, stop the COP or uh, uh, force them to do something. It was supposed to be a moment for the movements to come together, uh, to reinforce, uh, to consolidate their efforts and to launch, most importantly, uh, the escalation of actions in spring. Uh, and in that sense, nothing has changed. This has been our goal uh, coming here, and it is still the case. So it will be uh, an attempt, and a successful one, uh, to steal the um, spotlights from you know, leaders shaking hands and pretending to save the world in a state of emergency in an airport. Um, and say we, we have to, the this is not where the solutions are and the solutions will be at those uh, mass actions next year. So what is happening next year? One of the biggest plans is something called Break Free 2016. From May 7th through 16th, organizers are hoping to shut down what they call the world's most dangerous fossil fuel projects. Planning for mobilization is underway in Germany, Indonesia, the Philippines, Australia, the US, Nigeria, Canada, Brazil, and South Africa. More will be announced in the coming months. May Bouvi is the executive director of 350.org, one of the 17 groups and counting helping to coordinate these actions. The science is very clearly saying we have to leave 80% of known fossil fuels in the ground. So what indigenous peoples have been saying for years, now you also have nature, International Energy Agency, even the World Bank are saying the exact same thing. So it, it enables this uh, idea to really take off and for us to hold politicians, I think, newly accountable to it. So we've been working on a set of actions in the month of May that would really highlight how all of these fights are growing around the world and connected to one another. So from Indonesian coal exports to fracking in Argentina to tar sands in Canada, that it's a, a networked movement fight. So what's next after COP? We're very excited about where Keep It in the Ground campaigning goes next. We think that at the best, we'll be able to tell at the end of COP how far politicians are willing to go. But we've always known that people's movements would have to close the gap because the pledges are too small. And so no matter how good a potential outcome is, we have a lot more work to do. And we think that this fight to transition from fossils to 100% renewable is actually the best campaigning opportunity post-COP. So we're organizing May 7th to 13th, this series of actions all over the world. Four negotiators had agreed to the text, 15,000 people crowded into the streets in front of the Arc de Triomphe for the largest demonstration of the talks. 
Those gathered from the human red line, meant to represent the non-negotiable thresholds they intend to keep negotiators from crossing once they return home. This is John Jordan, speaking to a crowd of about 400 at one of the final briefings before the Red Line's action on December 12th, or D12. The Red Lines, he explains, were a kind of kickoff to the actions that will be happening through the spring. Here's John laying out the context for D12 within France's state of emergency, and the plan for the Red Lines to the people who went on to take part in the action the next day. We are a movement that's on the rise, and the French government are terrified. We heard off record that they wanted to, and they used the word, snuff out the movements around the COP21. This was before the attacks. The attacks happened, the state of emergency came in, and they then admitted off record that they were going to use this to stop us having our last word. That they wanted, as the Prime Minister said, to keep the negotiations just to the negotiations, and the Christmas markets, and the football stadiums, etc. But now, They've realized, because we haven't bent over, we said, we will disobey on the 12th, and we're going to do it, whatever, because we know that the real state of emergency, the real threat to security, is the system that causes the climate catastrophe. That's the threat to security. Happening against the backdrop of all this were France's regional elections. The Front National, an ultra-right nationalist party, swept the first round of elections the first weekend of the talks. To learn more, I spoke to Juliette Rousseau, spokesperson for Coalition Climat 21, which served as an organizational hub for demonstrations happening around the talks. I asked Juliette, who is French, what advice she'd give to Americans facing our own brand of right-wing nationalism here at home. Maybe surprisingly, her answer seemed to mirror what she and other organizers had to say about COP21. We've reached a moment in France where it's, I mean, the situation is so horrible. If I was to really look at it, it's not only about FN, it's about the state of emergency, it's about what a socialist government did to its own people. Um, the attacks, the, the level, the incredible level of, of institutional racism in, its con- in this country. The absolute... Uh, how do you say that? The fact that the socialists completely uh, reject any form of democracy when it comes to local struggles, people, you know, opposing some projects in their own territory and that are being completely repressed. If I look at the situation, to be honest, if I just look at this, institutional politics, I barely see any hope in the upcoming years in France. Now, when I look at us, at this movement, at what movements have been capable of achieving this amazing movement around the migrant crisis in Europe. You look at the environmental and climate movement. You look at, you know, the the anti-austerity movement. There is an amazing vitality amongst the movement. And what you see is that the gap between those two is just bigger and bigger. So I don't know what that tells about the future, but what's sure for me at the moment is if I want to feel hope, if I want to be able to keep on believing that it could be otherwise, I just need to stick with my people and these are my people. And, you know, if I look at the, the bigger picture, which honestly, I don't know, is what is, you know, the most legitimate? Is it institutional politics? Yes, because they have the capacity of putting us in jail and they did, they house, they house arrested some of my friends. But, yeah, I don't know. I think we live in a period where 
that's the that's the only the thing I see at the moment. The gap is just getting bigger and bigger, and I don't know what 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 it says about the future. What seems clear leaving Paris is that what will matter after COP21 is what kind of pressure governments will continue to face at home. Processes like the UNFCCC's are meant mostly to take consensus, not necessarily to shape it. That work falls mostly on movements, people like Tom, Selge, May, John, and Juliet, and the thousands who've already turned out to shut down coal-fired power plants, Shell's Arctic drilling, and projects like the Keystone XL pipeline. The official talks ended on December 12th. Based on what I heard from organizers, the real negotiations will happen in the months and years to come. Great report, Kate. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. So much fascinating material. Um, Okay, so one thing I have to just ask you right away, uh, the indigenous activist Tom Goldtooth that you spoke to, uh, I thought it was interesting how, on the one hand, he was arguing that, okay, indigenous peoples have a really distinctive and special role, uh, and we need to take that much more seriously. But he was also speaking on behalf of the climate justice movement more broadly, setting a whole series of groups that have been kind of left out. So what's your sense of how closely the indigenous movement is working with other elements of the broader climate justice movement? My best sense comes from the groups in North America. But as I mentioned in the beginning, Tom was part of something called the It Takes Roots delegation, which brought together a pretty widespread of climate justice groups from around the continent. So the Indigenous Indigenous Environmental Network, of course, along with groups like the Vermont Worker Center, the Black Mesa Water Coalition, Cooperation Jackson and Mississippi, And these groups are doing really different work locally, but came to Paris with a lot of shared understanding about what would and wouldn't come out of the talks. Oh, great. Intriguing. Um, So I feel like we could talk about this all day, actually. Me too, but we won't. Right, right, right. Because actually, we also want to get a more insidery perspective from a trusted, distinguished, longtime observer of this whole negotiating process. That's a pretty high bar. I know. But guess what? Timmons Roberts clears it. He's a professor of sociology at Brown. He's co-written a number of field-shaping books about climate politics and environmental justice, most notably A Climate of Injustice, Trouble in Paradise, Chronicles from the Environmental Justice Frontline, and this year, Power in a Warming World. And yes, they all have subtitles, but I'm not going to share them with you. Um, So we'll be linking to these, of course, on the blog. Uh, Timmons lives and breathes climate politics, both from the perspective of environmental justice, but also of getting things done. Amazing. Bar cleared. I'm totally ready to get his take on what went down in Paris. Okay, here goes. And just quick warning to our listeners. uh, You will hear some dogs barking in the background, but everybody is okay. So Timmons, it's great to have you on for the Special Descent magazine audio blog on the Paris Climate Talks. Uh, Making sense of this latest round of negotiations is no easy task. As the journalist Naomi Klein said in an interview recently, we live in a moment where different things are true simultaneously. So, you know, before we get into it, um, I was wondering if you could just say a couple of words to bring us up to date on your own long history of attending these climate negotiations. Thanks, Daniel. Um, Just say that I think uh, probably every moment of time is one where different things are true at the same time. Um, it's a complicated world and so much depends on how you look on it and look at it. And I think I would say from the start that I am personally still trying to figure out what to think of the Paris Agreement. And I think that's true of many pe- people, uh, especially those who 
are quite concerned about climate change and the issue of equity in the world, that really it's not clear that this is all good or all bad. I think that's the, the, the mixed message is that there are some very good things that happened and there's some things that really did not happen that needed to happen. Um, but it's going to be a long process. And I think the largest message is that, that people, social movements, others need to keep pushing for a better approach to climate change. So I've been attending the talk since about 2003, and I um, have actually been uh, working on climate change since 1992, the year of the U UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed back in Rio de Janeiro. And uh, I think just the twists and turns are have been exhausting emotionally and very extremely complex. And I would say as a social scientist, it's such an issue that never ceases to... Uh, fascinate because it's so complicated that it involves really every part of society and that uh, you know it's not going to be something that can be solved just by technology but rather there needs to be uh, there needs to be social socially complex uh, responses we need to think about our institutions our religions our schools our families, the way we, you know, live in terms of the landscape. Do we live close to cities far away? Do we, what kind of homes there's, how do we, um, you know, live with the planet that we've got here? So anyway, I think it's, it's quite fascinating. And, uh, um, and I think, uh, as I think about the sort of emotional up and downs, there's also the problem of keeping oneself hopeful uh, in spite of many years of what seemed like just stalemate in the international climate change negotiations. So I think it's a, been important for me to to find the things that, that were positive that were happening and, and then also try to be part of a solution. So try to sort of help move the system with some strategic policy-focused uh, research um, to put into the system. And so that's what I've tried to do as I bring groups of students to the negotiations uh, since over the last five years. Um, fantastic. So <clears throat> I think listeners will be able to read up on that. We'll post a link to your climate development lab uh, that you've got going at Brown, and it's doing fantastic work. So I think maybe we could work our way through the agreement and then towards some of these broader issues that you mentioned and see how they fit together. Um, in terms of the agreement itself, it seems, again, in, in the vein of this paradoxical reality, as you mentioned, uh, on the one hand, extremely ambitious, um, you know, an agreement of, again, reaffirming the two degrees Celsius uh, so-called guardrail, but now with a more ambitious and aspirational one and a half degree um, kind of target. And in, in addition to that, compared to past agreements, you have commitments from both rich and also poor developing countries, all of them uh, to cut carbon emissions. So this is no longer one part the rich world goes first and then everybody else waits, but now everybody is moving together. But on the other hand, if you add up all the commitments uh, as they are right now, the warming that's projected to come from those emissions is in the neighborhood of three degrees Celsius, so still in the kind of range of catastrophe. So, you know, what do you see as the kind of biggest good news story here? And is this, you know, is this really a case of a major ambitious step forward or is it you know, I guess, how would you characterize it in, in the kind of good sense? And then I think we can get into some of the problems afterward. Sure. So I would say that it's been, uh, it's not just the agreement, but the whole last year. So really 2015 itself was 
has been a year of some progress. And I would say it's been some real motion uh, and movement forward that sort of this seems like finally the countries of the world are willing to work on this issue and to put at least forward these series of pledges, 188 countries out of 194 or five in the world have put forward these INDCs or in, intended nationally determined contributions. That's a big language for a pledge. Um, and, but it says intended contributions. So it's uh, voluntary and it's nationally determined, which means that it's, you know, the country got to decide for itself what to put forward. So those 188 um, countries cover over 95% of all emissions in the world, which is far better than the Kyoto Protocol, you know, back from 1997, which in the end only covered about 14% of all emissions. So um, we've got a big improvement in terms of, as you said, the, the developing and the developed world all putting forward these kind of pledges. Now, um, the, as you said, if you add them up, they add up to something around three degrees. That's, there's a lot of different estimates on that. Some are as low as 2.7 degrees. Some are as high as 3.5. But regardless of how you calculate that number, if you calculated them before these pledges and after the pledges, there is improvement. So the numbers, for example, in, in several groups' um, methods of calculating this went from about 3.6 degrees Celsius down to 2.7 degrees. So what is that? That's a 0.9 or almost one degree Celsius improvement. So we went from, you know, just uh, unbelievably devastating consequences to less probability of those consequences. We're still not below the two degrees yet, but we're headed in the right direction. And we're certainly not to the one and a half degrees. So we may be only halfway to where we need to go. But it at least uh, the other big thing in Paris was that it set up a framework for sort of a global stock taking every five years and for countries to have to come back in with new pledges every five years. And those pledges are supposed to ratchet up. They're supposed to not backslide in their ambition level, but rather to get stronger. So I would say those are three really important things that happened. That is, the pledges are coming in. They're headed in the right direction. Uh, they're not enough. But it's, I think, a major achievement for uh, one degree improvement over this just in one year of pledges. And, um, and so I think uh, – and this structure setting up for every five-year reviews is really smart because the technology is getting cheaper uh, and countries are starting now to see that it's not necessarily a burden to reduce their emissions, but there's really benefits to doing so, namely that they can produce their energy locally – from renewable sources, so they're not uh, causing the environmental damage of fossil fuels. They're not reliant on external, you know, foreign suppliers. They're not facing a volatile price for those, you know, fossil fuels, whether it's natural gas, coal, or oil. Um, that is, it, it, you you know what it's going to cost for solar energy. The cost is zero, uh, as if you're collecting it yourself. So. Um, there's really, um, I think, a shift in mentality. And in five years and in 10 years, a lot more countries will be willing to do more because they're, they're, because this price of solar, wind, and other renewables is dropping so quickly to the point where it's as cheap as and soon to be as cheap as um, you know, fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. Yeah, so it, you know, it sounds like at the level of institutional kind of treaty design, this is a major step forward. 
and this you know the five year review periods you know clearly are an intelligent structure to ensure that ambition can escalate um and now as you say as well everybody is on board and each country is able to make its own plan to some extent at least initially so that you know there's no one really opting out so that's that's also progress the the question that then leaves open is something that you've been working on um for decades which is this issue of equity i think we need to look at now between countries so you know historically most of the emissions um, have been produced by the countries that are now the richest. That's how they developed. That's how they industrialized. Um, and on the flip side, for the most part, the places that are most vulnerable to the damages from climate change are the developing and the, and the poor countries. Um, and so historically, you know, in the last several years, the demand from those developing countries has been for the wealthier countries to kind of pick up the tab, both for low-carbon technology through technology transfer, um, funding adaptation efforts in poorer countries, and even compensating those countries for losses and damages uh, caused by extreme weather. Um, so this is something you've been looking at in detail. Um, you have a study out with Adaptation Watch. It suggests on this issue of adaptation funding that very little of the money that rich countries say they're spending on adaptation in poor countries actually corresponds or clearly corresponds to adaptation efforts. Um, and it seems that the most meaningful language on loss and damage payments from north to south was kind of stripped out of the accord text. So I'm kind of wondering if you could say, tell us a little about what you found in terms of these flows of money from north to south. You know, are the flows that have been set up adequate and are they even being kind of fulfilled in the way that the rich countries are saying that they are? Right. So on the first, just to put it in the big perspective, you, as you said, the equity issue is at the core of the climate change negotiations. And I think that's uh, why they are so difficult and, you know, why they're so interesting and why, you know, addressing the issue of equity is going to be critical for moving forward. So an important way to look at this, and it's one that really is in the minds of uh, almost all the countries, is the idea of atmospheric space. So um, you know, there's a certain amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that can be emitted to the atmosphere before we use up that space and we end up going over the one and a half or two degrees of warming that, you know, is seen to be relatively safe. Um, so here's the figures, um, a study by, uh, Glenn, um, Peterson, uh, Glenn Peters, sorry, from, um, Cicero up in, in Norway, um, a research institution said that, uh, We'll use up 54% of the remaining atmospheric space by 2025 and 70% by 2030 if countries follow these pledges that they've put forward. And that's almost all by the U.S., the EU, and China. And so there's this other 5 billion people out there who really there's not much space left and it'll all be used up by these major polluters, especially the ones who are caused this problem in the past. Um, uh, namely the U.S., Europe, Japan, and the other wealthy countries like Australia, Canada, and so on. So we have, as you said, a real equity problem of those who cause the problem uh, not really um, stepping up quickly enough to deal with it, um, to take into effect our take into account our historical responsibility. So there's more to talk about on that. On the issue of climate finance. Um, you know, one of the pledges from the very beginning back in Rio in 92 was that there would be new and additional funding to help developing countries deal with climate change, uh, to help them green their economies, and then to help them adapt to 
the impacts that are coming with climate change. And so we did a big study this year. Um, again, it's uh, at adaptationwatch.org. And uh, one part of it, uh, we looked at 5,200 projects, which the wealthy countries had categorized as having their principal or significant objective being helping poor countries deal with climate change, to adapt to climate change. And uh, we went through them one by one of those ones that were claimed, and we found that only about a quarter of them uh, were actually seemed to be sort of rigorously fit into the category of uh, adapting to climate, helping those countries adapt to climate change. Many of them were probably relabeled, you know, other projects that were done for other reasons, but which the contributing country decided to count um, either for, well, we don't know what the reasons are. There's been some some interesting research in the past, which showed some political pressures were driving countries to uh, claim that projects were climate related when they probably weren't. You know, these are for countries that, uh, you know, want to show that they're doing something about climate change and they want to show that they're giving enough money. Um, so three quarters um, of the $10 billion that were claimed in this was uh, data for 2012, only about $2.3 billion were actually seemed to be adaptation related uh, in a stricter sense. And so what we are basically saying, our, our largest message in that report is that there needs to be a, agreed definitions of what counts uh, as climate finance. Uh, to this point, it's really been a wild west where countries are able to claim whatever they want uh, as climate finance. So for example, in the US, we claim that our export credit uh, funding uh, through OPIC, the, um, the Overseas Investment uh, Agency, is actually funding American corporations uh, to invest in and make profits in foreign countries, in developing countries. And we're counting the funding that we give to those companies as climate aid, uh, which is pretty stunning, I think. Um, and it was certainly not in the, you know, the sort of spirit of the promise that was made back in in Copenhagen and uh, reaffirmed in Cancun, this is in 2009 and 2010, when the wealthy countries promised $100 billion a year by 2020 um, that, you know, for helping countries, poor countries deal with climate change. So really, it, I think it's, it's not helping to build trust in the way that was originally hoped for when we gave that pledge those six years ago. And, um, I think it's really a lost opportunity. So there's, and there, that this kind of thing has come up this this round of negotiations in Paris. So yeah, that, the, uh, that's that's what I wanted to ask. Just yeah. sharply, you know, did given the situation in this wild west, you know, the two point five billion is a lot less than the hundred billion that was promised. And you know, if there's one thing that the United States should not be exporting, it's creative accounting practices. But hmm. you know, how 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 much of that gap is being closed by Paris, or how how much progress is made toward clearer, more transparent, um, more accessible standards uh, for that, for actually evaluating the transfers. Right. So uh, I have a new blog out uh, yesterday uh, from, uh, with Homa Weekmans, uh, from, who's also in my lab uh, at Brown University, um, the Climate and Development Lab. Great. And we argue really that there's been very little progress on this, on the issue of finance in Paris, that it was kind of the 
the lost agenda or the forgotten agenda that did not really make uh, or the unfinished agenda that needs to really be worked on a lot more in the next few years, both in deciding what counts as climate change systems for independently verifying what's been claimed by the wealthy countries and then by really tracking each project to make sure the stuff gets carried out and built. Um, because I think there's, you know, there's issues of accountability and trust on both sides. So if, if the taxpayers in the global north are going to keep funding adaptation, they need to know that it's actually going for that and not ending up sort of lining the pockets of dictators and their and their cronies, you know, somewhere. So there's trust issues on both sides. And just to clarify, um, our, the 2.3 billion that I'm talking about, that was just of 10 billion that was claimed. But in the um, in the uh, the OECD report, a big report put out in October. Um, by the Wealthy Countries Club of the OECD, um, there was a claim that about $62 billion uh, flowed in 2014 from the global north to the south uh, for climate change. And the Indian government uh, released a little report that said, no, uh, we can't really say that. Most of this stuff should never have been counted. And the only thing we can really say is new and additional and not double counted or creative accounting is about to two and a half billion dollars. So there is a huge gap in what um, what people are claiming. Right. So that's, that's a good point. The, there are two numbers that are about two and a half billion, but they're coming out of different right different analyses. So we, sh- we should be careful with that. But in, in all of these cases, there seems to be good grounds for skepticism of the most optimistic claims of the OECD variety. Although even there, that doesn't get you to the hundred billion that was promised. And- right. I was just going to say, I mean, the estimates that... Um, you know, that I've thrown out there are maybe 20 or 30 billion is probably what's being, you know, delivered right now. In 2012, it was at about 10 billion. And it has increased in the last year or two, but not that much. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, I think this is especially significant, because, you know, as you show in your work, the issue of climate justice is not just a stance of moral evaluation, but is actually what is understood to be fair as a material force in, in the economy and in these negotiations. So, you know, your early work showing very well that what poor countries view as the legacy of colonialism and climate diplomacy becomes an obstacle to making deals, deals which uh, can be extremely unequal and penalizing to those countries, certainly with respect to the historical background. So I think we should keep in mind that the, the issue of justice isn't just a kind of armchair sort of tutting, right? But what the world agrees is a fair settlement in these issues, whether or not, you know, how we understand that actually has a major impact on what we can achieve together, since this isn't something that only a few countries can do on their own. Um, So I just want to move to another issue now, which is the issue of indigenous movements and their impact on climate politics, as we start to look at the agreement in the broader context. Um, So journalist Naomi Klein is just the latest of many uh, thinkers on this to point out that indigenous movements are playing a growing and increasingly important role. She really focuses on how indigenous movements are resisting fossil fuel extraction uh, at sites of production, like the Alberta tar sands. But there's also a major issue, which is forest management. So the Global Landscape Forum reports that fully one-fifth of the carbon locked in tropical forests lies on indigenous lands. So I think we've, we've all seen that indigenous movements and groups are having more influence outside the talks kind of contesting projects on the ground. But I'm wondering, um, is, is your sense from the actual formal state-to-state negotiations 
that those movements are able to have a presence there? Are their actions being taken seriously? You know, how, what is the relationship between all that activity and then what's going on at the level of high diplomacy? Right. So you do see a lot of indigenous people at the negotiations, um, not necessarily in the negotiating halls, but in the NGO spaces and the, you know, civil society and, and spaces around the negotiations. So they have official side events. There are international networks, uh, the indigenous environmental network and COICA and so on in South America. And so they are there. Um, they're inside the negotiations with badges, you know, with the, uh, official approval to come inside uh, where things are happening. Uh, and then there's also groups outside, um, you know, sort of more in the streets and in the um, other civil society place, uh, spaces. So I think, you know, they're trying to be uh, heard in the process. Are they being heard? I would say not necessarily. Um, the United Nations process is quite interesting because it's, it is governments. Uh, and then there is, you know, some, uh, sort of protocols for how non-governmental organizations get to speak up. And for example, during the long series of speeches, when heads of states get to stand up there and their three minute speeches, which always go over to five or 10 or 15 mm -hmm. minutes. Um, then at the very end of all those, there's usually time for indigenous people organizations for, you know, environmental organizations, business groups, and so on to each have their three minute, uh, um, you know, statement that they get to read. Um, but, you know, indigenous people often do get lumped in with the civil society groups. And as they say, they are not a civil society group. They're actually representatives of a people. They are elected, you know, or somehow chosen by traditional process, you know, procedures. And so I think it's, you know, it's an ongoing problem that they are, there's not really quite a place for them. They don't have a seat at the table. They do, if they are successful at raising issues, they can raise moral issues and kind of force the institutions of the UN, the different parts of the system, for example, the ones working on forests and whether forests should be something that is that uh, countries are compensated for protecting, you know, whether it's through this thing called RED or RED plus, the reduced emissions from deforestation and land degradation. Um, and, uh, you know, the indigenous people have been able to have some input on that. Although I do want to acknowledge also that indigenous people have different opinions about this. Um, some are in favor of, of uh, payments for protecting forests. Some are opposed um, as seeing it as sort of a market mechanism that can be quite um, risky and damaging, potentially sort of ex expropriating or dis dispossessing people who are in those forests. Um, as the benefits often go to governments or to businesses that can control the land. And the same is actually true for extracting petroleum, other minerals, and, and lumber and so on, on indigenous preserves around the world. Um, that is, that some tribes uh, and tribal peoples um, see it as one of their only resources that they can muster sort of to, uh, to gain some resources for their own their, their own social development. And so, of course, you know, some will want to do some extraction of resources, but do it in a way that's, you know, hopefully more protective of their, um, you know, of their cultures and of the ecosystems. Yeah, no, I think that it's, it's definitely important to, to point to that complexity. I think, you know, we're all looking for actors who can accelerate 
the kind of decarbonization efforts who can fight back against fossil fuels. But I don't think we can fall victim to narratives that are too essentialist or too simplistic. And then we don't actually right. understand the complexity of this whole process. Um, so, you know, I want to ask you kind of about one more big thing here, which is, um, you know, when, when, when at the top of our conversation, you raised the issue that, you know, climate change is enormously complex. It implicates a whole range, uh, you know, basically everything to do with how we live our everyday life. And, you know, part of having some kind of hope comes from looking at ways that we can take climate action that also improve the quality of our everyday life. So it's not just about making sacrifices, uh, even in the rich countries that do historically have emitted the most. So I'm wondering, you know, you've written um, after the Paris deal, now the UN has kind of done its job, more or less. It's time for other groups, um, other entities to step up. And this, you know, brings to mind, to me, stuff you've written about the need for kind of wartime level of mobilization, sort of analogous to the Second World War, total transformation of the U.S. industrial base um, very quickly. Um, and when you, you know, I think when historians and sociologists look back at that, they see not just a set of, at the time, very innovative policies, but also a kind of a new coalition of social actors, often fighting against each other, but able to find some consensus. So industrialists, you know, state managers who are becoming more and more assertive, a surging labor movement, so a kind of constellation of actors who all found a way to agree on a few core policy changes, which were quite transformative. So I'm wondering, you know, now, do you see elements of this kind of coalition? Do you see uh, sort of concrete analogies to that period now that we can build on in the search of a pretty rapid, pretty transformative change to the material basis of our economy? I do. Uh, I think it's just emerging right now, but it is happening um, that there are a new sort of visions for how this could happen and you know the world doesn't become a awful place to live in and in fact it can become a better place to live in so just the first thing is to say that uh, the, probably the most important work is envisioning futures that are ones that we want and that that most maybe not all but most people will want to move to where it's a safer world and uh and it's a f and it's fun and it's uh, you know filled with community and uh, good things to do and not just telling people no 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 you can't do this or that. So I think that's a lot of that work has got to be done by artists and writers and you know people who really are you know administrators and so on that are able to to envision new institutions and um, and make them happen and and make them sustainable ones. But I would say on this question of Wartime mobilization. I'm inspired by an old book by um, Andrew Sims from the New Economics Foundation in uh, in London. Uh, it's called uh, An Environmental War Economy, and he talks a lot about World War II and how it was uh, just a fundamental transformation of this of these society in almost no time in you know wartime Britain, and they were just unbelievably efficient, uh, and they just you know the waste that was cut out was huge. Now that was rather drastic, and there was an external enemy, but um, you know there is, I think, a, a dawning a, a awareness that you know that the weather is changing, that the 
that we're, that everything uh, is at risk here and uh, we need to start really making these kind of big changes. And I think what the point you're raising is one that really has not been discussed much. That is, you know, is there a new coalition that can make this happen? And uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm beginning to see it, for example, in here in Rhode Island, as we're working on carbon pricing legislation, you know, a sort of fee and dividend um, that would, you know, be collected on fossil fuel, depending on how much uh, carbon emissions uh, each ton creates, and then actually distributing some of that money back to individuals and to businesses and nonprofits, but then also using some of that funding to uh, weatherize low-income homes and small businesses and so on, and also to install some renewables and so on, that there is suddenly okay, uh, so just- going to be some funding, for example, for union union jobs, good work, good jobs for people to do the installation of this stuff. And a lot of it is not that high tech, that it really is uh, approachable jobs for you know middle class and working class Americans. Sorry, just to jump in quickly, the, I think it's important to note because the main narrative on tax and dividend that we hear from uh, James Hansen, the atmospheric scientist, is 100% of the money collected from the carbon tax goes back to the taxpayers and none of it is goes to government because the argument is that, you know, government is wasteful or mistrusted or something. But what you're talking about is a combination of a refund to the taxpayer, but then also a kind of industrial policy where there is strategic investment in the clean energy sector, weatherization of low-income homes, like you said, various various investments that would create jobs while also bringing down carbon. Is that right? That's right. That's our that's our legislation here that will be introduced in January. And it's, it does give 70% right back to the individual individuals and to the, you know, the companies and nonprofits so that almost everybody's going out ahead or at least even or close to even in terms of how much they pay in each year and how much they get back in a check that would come from the state government every December. The funding is ring-fenced so that it can only go into paying back people dividends each year or going into this clean energy and jobs fund, which would be only for energy retrofitting, you know, for efficiency and weatherization of the drafty homes we have here in Rhode Island and for installing renewable energy and so on. So um, I think there is really going to be opportunities for labor unions, for contractors, for, um, you know, for managers uh, in, in companies large and small to do uh, a whole new set of work. Um that will rapidly become possible because it'll be a rotating loan fund. So I think if people see just how this will multiply its value for the state, and I mean, this tiny little state of Rhode Island is is spending $3 billion a year on fossil fuels, and none of it is produced here. So all that money is just uh, pouring out of the state. So we had an analysis done by a consulting firm that is used around the country uh, by local and state governments, and they found that it would probably doing this would create a net increase of jobs by about 4,000 new jobs, which for Rhode Island is a significant number. Um, This is great. So, you know, it's interesting to move right from Paris, ultimately back to Rhode Island. And and we see that, you know, the, what, what is powerful about these negotiations insofar as they're successful is that they hopefully enable a, a kind of proliferation of these kinds of initiatives, like the ones that you're talking about, right. And as those lessons are learned, Part of the challenge will be to, to communicate those as quickly as possible so that other jurisdictions, other regions can be moving uh, very quickly in this sort of innovative way. But it's exciting to hear you say that 
uh, at least in the case of Rhode Island, there is kind of a coalition behind this. It's not just a few policy wonks, but this is turning into a real social project. We think it is, and I think exactly the point you're making is the key one that, you know, Rhode Island itself is a tiny fraction of global emissions, but we can be an example, you know, a sort of a case study. We're a, <clears throat> I say, a scale model of a state. We're sort of, you know, so small that we can try try things, and we're also highly vulnerable. We have 400 miles of coastline in a small state, um, and uh, as as one of our senators once joked, you know, uh, how, you know, somebody said, well, how big is Rhode Island? I said, well, you're talking about it low tide or high tide. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're getting smaller. So, you know, we're trying to keep the state in the ocean state, you know, um, yep. it's, it's going to be all ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, look, I think this is a great place to end. I mean, not this notion of the ocean, but the kind of creativity, uh, and the, you know, Rhode Island is an exemplary case. Um, the German critic, Walter Benjamin, uh, he wrote years ago that, it is for those without hope that hope is given to us. So I think this this version of hope, right, for climate politics, which is practical and action-oriented, um, is, I think, what we need to be focused on. Yeah, and I would just say that there's opportunities to work on this issue, you know, in your home, in your church, in your school, in your university, in your workplace, uh, you know, with the local government, in your city government, in your state government, and then nationally and internationally. So... Absolutely. This is, I think Paris does create the opportunity uh, and the need for local action. And it's now it's time for us to step up and do it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Timmons. Thanks, Daniel. I enjoyed it. That was a great interview, Daniel. Thanks, Kate. Um, And so now I have a question for you. So, Kate, as someone who is outside the talks, speaking with movement people inside, you know, what's your take on Timmons's take here? Uh, How does it connect to what you were hearing um, during your own reporting? Well, I'll start off by saying, of course, there's no one take and the movements disagree plenty. But it was actually pretty surprising to hear how similar those takes were. One thing that sticks out is that Paris simply wasn't Copenhagen, and we aren't picking up the carnage in the same way. You probably remember this better than I do, but the horror stories you hear from the climate talks in 2009 was that everyone, wonks, organizers, everyone, was in a total tailspin, and just couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that the talks had imploded. At least among the people we've talked to, there were no illusions about what happened in Paris, and cooler heads are prevailing. Maybe the best thing about this round of talks is that it gave people a set of blueprints or next steps for what to do, whether they're shutting down coal plants or conducting some much-needed policy research. So that's interesting. I mean, the thing is that the next steps just get bigger and bigger, though. I thought what was fascinating with the conversation with Timmons is, you know, he was very excited to move from let's talk about negotiations to let's talk about World War II levels of social and political mobilization to utterly transform Uh, the economy. I mean, do you think the climate movement is ready for that? I think the climate movement is certainly ready. And and it was really interesting how we started off answering that question, talking about how the future should be determined by artists and writers building a creative vision for the future. I mean, when most people talk about the Marshall Plan, which is the reference point here, it's not exactly fun. on top of that is is this question of whether or not something like that is politically possible. and, And 
as we've seen in the last several years, the last several decades even, um, there's been a total attack on just the notion of public spending, especially in the global north and in the U.S. in particular. And whether or not something like a Marshall Plan can happen may not be impossible, but it does make the political task of mobilizing resources and political will much higher. Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, one of the kind of sobering moments for me of your uh, report is when you speak to this activist in France and she basically says, look, you know, the only way to keep myself alive psychologically is to stay with my own people. She means the social movement people. And she feels the gap between the movements and the state growing larger and larger. And that's in Europe where the public sector isn't as devastated yet, I think, as it is in the U.S. So, I mean, I guess that stands out as still something of a challenge. If we're going to get that kind of massive New Deal Marshall Plan type intervention, we are going to need the movement people and the kind of state spaces to be a little closer together than they are right now. Exactly. And I think coming out of Paris, people are coming to fill in what that gap looks like. So it's no longer that there's this totally removed state and then you have the movements on the outside. I think especially after the accords and seeing the gaps in them, people are starting to understand that you do need to engage very seriously with the state and start making a plan to do that, whether that's through policy, whether that's through aggressive movement pushes, or taking state power. Great. Well, it sounds like this is an issue that is complicated, but not totally hopeless. You know, taking state power is on the horizon. Things are moving. Um, So this has been great. I agree. And I think it's probably about time to go offline. And again, we'll post links to a bunch of the stuff that both of us have written, including Daniel's review of Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, which went up in Jacobin a couple weeks ago. Oh, wow. Thanks, Kate. I appreciate that. And uh, dear listeners, do remember to tweet any and all thoughts to hashtag dissenting climate. And who knows? You may be hearing from us again. Exactly. Who knows? Uncertainty. The theme of climate politics. Oh, that is comforting. Happy New Year. Thank you.